Ever since I have known this guy, he's been very gracious, very supporting, very loving, very Christ-like. He values community. He lives out the gospel. So I look forward to seeing what he has to share and just want to pray. So please pray with me. Father, we thank you for Paul McKenzie, our brother in the Lord. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in his heart, just continually enlarging his heart and bringing forth revelation of your heart for us and who we are as beloved sons and daughters of God, establishing true identity. God, I pray for seeds to be sown tonight that would go deep and bear much fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Bob. Bless you as well. Um, I don't have my phone on me, so just don't have, and that's usually what I use to time myself. So keep me accountable with that. Uh, so do I. So praise the Lord. We're kindred there. Amen. Um, amen. So I'm just going to pray again. Um, it just helps me just get before the Lord and, you know, just seek him. So, God, we just we're so grateful for who you are. We're so thankful for your presence, for your son, Jesus, that he partners, that he desires a partner with mankind in such a way that he became a man. Father, we ask you right now, God, for the spirit of wisdom, for the spirit of revelation and the knowledge of who Jesus is. We want to see him. We want to know him. We want to experience the things that he experiences, God. Jesus, you said in the garden that you have desires on your heart. So right now we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us insight to those desires. Teach us your ways. We love your ways, Jesus. We just confess right now, God, we love the ways of Christ, the Beatitudes, the way of Mary of Bethany, sitting at your feet and feasting on your words. This one thing, God, we ask, this one thing we seek, we desire to sit and dwell in your house all of the days of our lives, God. And we just echo that song today with all of our heart. We will love you with all of our heart, Jesus, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, God. We ask you to give us grace to pour out our lives, even today, God, as a drink offering unto you. Set destinies today, Jesus. Set dreams. Just even as we just commune with you this evening, God, just fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us know what you have destined us to, God. Help us know what you birthed out of the clay in the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago when you said, let us make man in our image. When you look to your precious son and you look to your Holy Spirit and you communed as a perfect trinity, as a triune God in the uncreated just thrones of heaven and said, let us make man in our image. We love you, Jesus. We just worship you this, this evening. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So, hallelujah. I'm just so grateful to be with you guys. It's such a privilege. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I've been coming here, shoot, like seven years now. It's a long time. Amen. I'm 29. I look like I'm 12. So that's all right. Um, I met my wife here. She's upstairs. I'm so proud of her. She's a um, she works for Target headquarters. She wouldn't want me to tell you that because probably like 12 of you are going to go ask her for get her a job now because everyone wants to get a job at Target. So, amen. Um, but, yeah, she's upstairs actually on the phone with like the Hong Kong office, but she came to support me all the while. So I'm just so thankful for her. 
Um, so yeah, we met here. Paul married us. Um, we've been married almost six years now. So it was just a glorious six years, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but tonight, just to contextualize what I'm going to talk about, one of the primary questions I hear a lot from our generation, from like 18 to 30-year-olds, or just even a statement more than a question, is um, just related to guidance. You know, I don't know that it's like one particular sentence, but it's always under this like umbrella of guidance. Like, I don't know what God wants me to do. I'm just waiting for the Lord to release me either into ministry or into a family or into marriage or one of those like primary things. You're just so hungry and desperate to like hear the voice of the Lord over just the next phase or the next season of your life. Um, so I just want you to like be comforted that that's normal, that it's normal to have this uncertainty around you. And um, what the Lord actually really brought me peace even recently, I was meeting with a brother who I mentor here and um, it's from a book called Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. And I just want to say this just to kind of contextualize this this evening, because I hope you leave here tonight with a little more certainty around your destiny and your dream and just who you are in Christ. The um, title of the message is Transforming Power of Knowing Who You Are in Christ. So E.M. Bounds writes in this book, Power Through Prayer, that... Um, so many times we try to create this formula around, um, you know, not to be like cliche or anything, around like things like revival. And it's exactly what Kyle was talking about. And I've never spoke with Kyle or met him. You know, I heard his message the same as you did just now. So that's my only real like interaction with him. But it's so true. We try to invent and manufacture revival and manufacture breakthrough. And Ian Bounds says, much like Paul the Apostle calls it my gospel, God makes the man, and the man makes the message. And so what he means by that is we, we see these messages up here today, and it's like 20, 30 minutes you guys get to spend with me. But it takes Jesus like 20 to 30 years to make men look like him because we're stubborn and we're broken and sin is intense. So I just want to encourage you not to just get so consumed by the process, to get so anxious and that takes grace, and we're going to talk about that tonight. You know, you don't have to, like, strive to be peaceful. Um, but just that whole just reality of just trusting Jesus to make you. And he's going to do it really, really well. I promise you that. Amen. And, and, and when we met a couple of weeks ago when Andy spoke on marriage, the, just the, such a big question mark in our minds is, like, how do we know if it's the real one? How do we know if that's the one? And I remember asking the same exact question to Paul about Adriana. I was, uh, he had, I mean, I'll just tell you the story, and you guys are going to think it's hilarious, but this is honestly the story. So I went to Paul, and I, we'd been dating like a little less than a year, and I was in it. You know, I loved her, and I, my heart was terrified, but just really excited at the same time. And he's like, Paul, do you think you're going to marry her? And I was like, well, yeah. He's like, well, do you know when? And this was in like April. So I was like, well, either this fall or next spring. He goes, I think you should do it in the fall. I was like, okay. So we're just kind of dialoguing. And then he goes, well, do you know when in the fall? I was like, well, not really. He goes, well, do you want me to be a part of it? I said, well, yes. He goes, well, if you want me to marry you, then you have to do it October 5th. (laughs) 
and it was all scared. It was like practice. It was just pragmatism. It was like, well, because I'm doing this, I have the Holy Spirit conference. I'm like, got the holidays, and there's like just really practical things. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm getting married October fifth. <laughs> and then I, and then he's like, well, um, okay. So then I said, I'm like, all right, Paul. So how do I know if she's the one? And he's like, well, I would encourage you to do this. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, if you don't tell me in the next three weeks that I'm not supposed to marry Adriana, then I'm going to marry her. And if in the next three weeks you argue every single day, then it probably means you shouldn't get married. And that was honest to God what he told me. So I was like, okay. And I was so like convicted by Paul's like just beautiful life that I was just willing to do whatever he told me to do. <laughs> I mean, that was honestly my heart posture. So I went to Adriana and I was like, so I told her the story and I told her everything and she was just furious. She was like, so wait. I'm like planning this wedding and now we're getting married October 5th and she's just super overwhelmed and confused. Well, long story short, like the Lord was so kind and so patient with us and obviously we got married and we love each other. But just like the process of that, that wasn't that challenge, that, that's not that anti-spiritual in just having a mentor to walk you through that. I mean, that was honestly my story and it was simple and it was beautiful, but the Lord walked me through it and he guided me. So I just want to encourage you guys with that and just, like, give you guys just, like, peace that he's going to do it. He's going to set, he's going to finish the work he started in you, and he's really, really good at it. Amen. So when I grew up, so I'm going to tell you guys a lot of my story, and then I'm going to give you guys some theology to walk away with. So growing up, um, I grew up in a busted family, a really dysfunctional and unfortunately, I was exposed to very little insight into the knowledge of God as my father and who I am in Christ. And it wasn't until I actually came here and met Paul and was mentored by him and a couple other brothers that I actually, you know, started living for the Lord. And while in college, my first couple of years, I found myself at this like dramatically low point. And I remember reading Ecclesiastes and I was always kind of a cynic and pretty pessimistic until I met Jesus and I was really encouraged to find cynicism actually in the Bible. It was really, it was like, really, it was like, Jesus, you actually have other people who think like this, and that's okay, and they still love you. And I was like super encouraged by it. So, you know, Solomon, like the wisest man in the world, which also gave me encouragement, he said, vanities of vanities, says the preacher, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. What does man, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? And I remember reading these things in college, and I was like, it's all pointless. I mean, this it's meaningless. And I was just so, like, actually in a weird way comforted by those words because I, I knew, like, and some of you may even be thinking that tonight. And so I remember just reading through Ecclesiastes and hearing other people resonate with it and feeling like my life pretty much mapped out according to these words. And at the same point, I remember struggling pretty heavily with depression. I remember going to my mom and some other folks and just saying, you know, how do you know if you have depression? And I was a psychology major, so I was learning about it. But it was in this place of like really like brokenness where the Lord actually met me and really started to show me his love and really started to pour out his heart to me. It was in that desperation where I really started to like pray real prayers, like just Jesus help me. Like I remember being in my bed and just being like, Jesus, you have to do something with my life right now because it is a mess. And that was just honest. And Jesus just started 
out of that brokenness really started to meet me. And in college, I remember, you know, and I'll put it this way, God just started feeding my hunger for Eden. And Eden just haunts you. It just haunts you forever, and it will forever haunt us. And I'll explain that a little bit more, but I remember reading this book by John Eldridge. It was this little book called Epic. And in the book, John just unpacks this beautiful picture, and he just says it begins with uncut stone or a mass of clay or a rough sketch, formless and empty as Genesis 1-2 has it. Then it starts to take shape, light and dark, heavens and earth, land and sea, large sweeping movements on a grand scale. Next come the realms of forest and meadow, tulips and pine trees and moss-covered stones, colored detail, finer things. Then follows the animal kingdom and its vast array, camels, penguins, your cat. Creation is growing in procession and intricacy of form. In movement and color, personality is woven through it all, and it's building for a crescendo. And all of a sudden, so here he's just mapping out the six-day creation, and he's just showing you just this beauty that Jesus is just singing into existence. And all of a sudden, the writer of Genesis just stops right in the midst of this, and the unthinkable actually happens. Jesus and the Father and the Son, and the first time ever, they look at each other, and they roll up their sleeves, and they pick up the clay, and they start to tease out the design of humanity. And it's so intense. And Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, they're looking at each other, and they're just saying, let us do something unthinkable. Let us make man in our image. And he pours out his heart. He pours out his whole being and breathes life into this dead, busted soil, and he builds you. And I just remember just my life. I started reading these words, and all of a sudden, just meaning started to just flow inside of me, and I just started to well up inside. And it says in Genesis, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. Then he blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over every living thing that moves. And that's what Jesus destined inside of you when he said to the Father and the Father said to Jesus and the Spirit brought it all together. He said, let us do this. And it was good. Beloved, that is your story. That is what God birthed inside of you in Eden haunts us. You look at any romantic movie, any uh, Disney, the entire genre of Disney just bleeds Disney. Like Snow, bleeds Eden, I mean. Like Snow White, the whole witch, and the apple, and the prince kisses her, and she comes back to life. Like, that is your story. That is your story. She eats the apple from the witch, then the prince comes and kisses her on the mouth, and there's like all these beautiful things around her in the garden, and there's, you know, seven dwarfs just like chanting. I mean, that is our story. That didn't come from nowhere. Like, Walt Disney didn't invent that. Jesus did. And I remember just like being so encouraged by these things. And Jesus says, have dominion over every living thing that moves. And beloved, he wants a partner. Jesus wants to do that with you. He wants a bride and a partner and just this beautiful relationship with us where he just pours out his desire to own things and be the king. And most time in scripture, and and here's how we know Jesus is committed to this, because most times 
in Scripture, we see Jesus seated on a throne. So I'm just going to unpack a few like monumental times in Scripture where we see Jesus seated on a throne here. In Psalm 110, we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand with the Father. David is having this prophetic vision. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord. So he said, you know, he's talking about God and Jesus all in one sentence, both Lord. And he's saying, I will make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. So just the Father talking to Jesus, just saying, hang out with me right here in the heavens and I'm going to make the enemies your footstool. It just promises Jesus this beautiful inheritance. In Daniel 7, 9, we see that God the Father, the Ancient of Days, is opening up the books to judge humanity forever. He's ushering humanity into their eternal destiny for all of eternity. And he says, in Daniel's in this vision, he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So we see the Ancient of Days on his throne. His vesture was like white, white like snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His thrones... His throne was ablaze with flames, his wheels like a blaming fire. In Revelation 4, Jesus pulls up John into this prophetic vision to where he lays out the blueprint of the entire end time story where Jesus will cleanse the earth of sin forever and Jesus is seated on a throne. John, John writes in Revelation 4, After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was seated, I was in the spirit and behold a throne standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting like the jasper stone in a sardius in appearance and there was a rainbow around him like an emerald in, like emerald in appearance. So here's Jesus for the first time showing John the beloved his glory. He's seated on a throne. He's got this fiery presence, this emerald rainbow of mercy all around him. He's got 24 elders, four living creatures who are freaking John out. They got like four faces and six wings, eyes all around him. I mean, it's nuts. And Jesus is sitting on a throne the entire time. In Psalm 2, God actually promises Jesus the nations as his inheritance. He's laughing at all of the schemes of man and vanity, just trying to overcome Jesus. And he says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And then he says, I will declare, I will decree, declare this decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So here's the father giving Jesus the inheritance. He's sitting on his throne laughing at humanity. Psalm 29 says the Lord sat enthroned over the flood when Jesus and God enthroned and flooded the entire nation in Genesis, entire world in Genesis. They did it in total confidence, sitting on their thrones. But all of a sudden we see an entirely different reality come to pass when God comes to redeem mankind. When it comes to redemption, something entirely different happens inside of the Father and Jesus, and they burn with this jealous love, and we see this entirely different reality come upon Father and and Jesus. And as soon as Adam and Eve did the one thing God told them not to do, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't do that, because surely you're going to die. And as we all know, surely they do it. And what is God's response? God gets up, out of his seat, and he walks with humanity. When it comes to redeeming mankind, 
God does something entirely different. He doesn't get up out of his seat to show his eternal destination, his eternal blueprint to John the Beloved. He doesn't get out out of his throne to flood the entire world. He doesn't get out out of his throne for all those other things to rule and mock the nations. But when it comes to redeeming us, when it comes to restoring that Genesis plan that where he breathed life into the clay, it says in Genesis 3 that, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God says, for this purpose, I am getting out of my throne. I'm going to go walk with them, and I'm going to go take care of this situation because it's dear to me, because there's something inside of my heart that wants to dwell with man. And the same thing we see so many, we see it in other instances too. In Luke 15, when the penitent prodigal returns to his father's house, it's even, it's even more intense. God sees him. He's looking for him. He's sitting at that front porch of his house, and he sees the prodigal running home. He's come to his senses. And the father's emotions, he says, while he was still a great off, his father saw him and had great compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I mean, that's what the father's response is to you when you return to him, when you just pour out your heart and say, I'm sorry. And the same thing in Song of Songs 2.9, it says that Jesus, he's crying out. He says, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. On the, de- on the Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the, of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. And it says at the beginning of it, behold, he stands. He stands and he cries out to us, I want a partner. In Revelation 3, he just pounding on the door of the Laodiceans. He's saying, open up the door of your heart and let me in because I know you're weak. I know you're wretched. I know you're jacked up and busted, but I want to give you a heart. I want to give you a warm heart. I want to make you look like me because if you don't, I'm going to have to vomit you out of my mouth and he doesn't want to do that. So beloved, this man, Jesus, he wants a partner. And I'm telling you today, you can be that partner. Even this, this evening, you can take that step and you can make that decision to look like Jesus and have dominion over every creeping thing that moves on the earth. And he wants to give you grace to name all the animals, to have dominion over his kingdom, and to be fruitful and multiply. And he's so committed to it that he went as far as he could go and he took on flesh. Not only does he get out, out, of, his, out, of, his, out of his throne room to do it, but he actually put on the flesh of humanity forever. And what's astonishing is that so I remember when I was starting to come to Jesus in college, I used to think, well, God, you like had to do that, right? Like, I mean, you kind of like put yourself in a pretty tight spot. You know, it's like, oh, you made man. You kind of probably knew they were going to screw it up. And then you're like, yeah, well, I got to do something. I kind of like own this creation. But what blew my mind is when in in Genesis 3, the father actually prophesied that it was going to happen way before Jesus ever did it. In Genesis 3, the first thing God says is he looks at that serpent and he says, because you have done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And when I started to realize that that prophecy was actually about Jesus, and I read in the Gospel of Luke that, you know, Luke, in his perfect, tedious ways, he just traces back Jesus' genealogy all the way to Adam. And I'm like, no way. Like, God actually promised that this was going to happen 6,000 years ago before he even birthed 
another human being in Cain and Abel. And so, beloved, he is committed to this. He's so committed and woven into the destiny of humanity that nothing was going to stop him from flinging himself to that cross and winning your soul back to the Father. So tonight I just want to talk, after laying all that out, just what Jesus meant when he told the apostles, it's to your advantage that I go away and give you the Holy Spirit. Because until I became familiar with who the Holy Spirit was, my life had just this great utter disconnect with who God was. Because the Bible says that the Spirit searches the deep things of God and that we can, have, we can actually have the mind of Christ. And so without that Holy Spirit on the inside of us, and I'll say it this way, and this will give you an idea of how intensely perfect God created our bodies, is that I don't know if there's any electricians in the room, but... Many of you know if you take like a 110-watt piece of machinery and you stick it into 220-watt voltage of electricity, that piece of machinery is going to explode. I mean, it's just going to... But when God put his Holy Spirit inside of you, that same being that birthed life out of dead clay, your body didn't explode. And that's intense. The fact your human frail body didn't over explode and short circuit and turn into mush and just superimpose with that unapproachable light that it said God wraps himself in. The fact that that didn't happen should give you great insight into how precious that holy human frame is. And so precious that Jesus actually took it on and he lived out a perfect life and redeemed us back to the Father in that very frame. So when Jesus took his Holy Spirit and said, it's to your advantage in John 16, 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not, the helper will not come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. I mean, that reality that Jesus said, it's to your advantage, that was the very blueprint and recipe that's going to perfect our human bodies. That's going to walk out that creation story. When Jesus says, I'll complete the work that I started in you. And when he said, let us make man in our image. It's the very work of the Holy Spirit inside of us that's actually going to see it come to pass. And it's perfect because Jesus doesn't make mistakes. Jesus didn't mess it up. And the Bible says, John says in Revelation, he was and is and is to come. And that speaks to how deeply involved Jesus is in the destiny of our human bodies jesus is so good at this i mean it's so easy for us to see all the just this madness the human trafficking the abortion rates the divorce rates it's so easy for us to see that and get consumed by it and just question jesus's leadership but beloved i tell you he's a genius the man is a genius and I'll, I'll say it this way, for Paul just to even run his family, like six kids and a wife and grandkids, and just uphold that and like be the leader of that is an enormous amount of work. Jesus does it in like 10 billion people. There's like however many billion now, then you count however many people died, however many people are going to exist beyond this. Like Jesus does it perfectly, and he never makes one mistake. So the fact that Jesus can do that, I promise you, he will see this come to pass. So just a little bit of theology, then we'll close in prayer here. Um, 
In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And that we might become the righteousness of God. So I'll, what helps, I think, understand what it means to be a new creation is we can have both a living condition and a legal condition. And a good analogy of it is thinking of a homeless beggar. So a good story is if there's a homeless beggar who sits underneath a bridge and he's, you know, he's got the sign, we all know it, you know, we wonder like, is this for real or is he going to use it for, you know, buying booze or whatever he's going to do and we question it and we're like having this dialogue with the Lord. Like think of that guy and all of a sudden that guy inherits like a billion dollars. Let's make it more modest, like more realistic, a million dollars. Let's say he has some rich uncle, he's the only living, you know, ancestor on the earth and he's like, shoot, I just inherited a million dollars. Now, that guy has two choices. He can either go to the bank and cash that check for a million dollars and inherit the money and take up the responsibility to spend it wisely and live out what it means to be a millionaire. But if he doesn't physically cash that check and doesn't do the things that it takes to go to the bank and sign sign his name on the dotted line and go get a driver's license to prove that he's the guy, if he doesn't walk those steps out, he'll live as a homeless beggar the rest of his life. But legally, that man is, in, is entitled to a million dollars. And the same exact reality is with us in the Holy Spirit. Beloved, when Jesus died and took the keys of death and Hades forever, that legal transaction immediately took place, and you're righteous before Jesus. You legally don't have to do anything to inherit the eternal riches of Jesus in his kingdom. And right now he's building you a home in, 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 in heaven. He says, in my house are many mansions. If it were not true, I would not say it. And I'm going up there to build you the home. He's a carpenter and he's building you a home. But you have to transact, you have to legally, and you have to walk out that living condition to say, I'm going to sign my name to the check, I'm going to cash that million dollars, and I'm going to start living a life of sanctification and beauty in Christ Jesus. Same thing happens with marriage. When I got married to Adriana, legally, everything I own is hers. If, heaven forbid, you know, something happens to me, I get hit by a bus on the ride home. She owns my house. She owns the house. She owns my bank account. She owns everything. Any inheritance, any investment, she owns it all. She doesn't have to do anything to, like, earn that. But I'll promise you this. If I don't date Adriana, if I don't take her out to dinner and ask her what she's feeling, ask her how her day was, we're going to have a very stressed relationship and our living condition is going to be jacked up. Same thing happens with Jesus. Legally, when you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and you make that faith and you make that righteous decision, legally, you're, you're good. But if you don't walk that out and you don't love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your condition, your living condition with Jesus is a gigantic mess. And I promise you, when you go to pray, when you go to feel his presence, when you go to open up his word, when you go to dialogue with the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a great disconnect. So you have to commune with him. You have to walk that out. And it's because I, and the same, you're going to see it when you get married. And that's why marriage is so telling of our relationship with Jesus. So does that make sense? The legal versus living condition. Can I get an amen? Does that, does it, you guys recognize with that? So. See, how how much time do I have? Okay. So I'll close with this. Um, 
Sanctification is a process. So I started with that E.M. Bounds, that E.M. Bounds quote, just how it takes 20 years for God to make the man. Beloved, I want to tell you that seven years ago, this message was so unreal to my heart. It didn't make any sense to me. But as you take those steps, as you take that journey, and you engage on that narrow road, it just starts to become normal. So I just want to encourage you tonight to let sanctification happen. And, you know, sanctification is simply us becoming more and more like Jesus. And I don't know that it ever ends because I prom- I, I'm pretty convicted that even after a billion years of being in heaven, I'm going to know Jesus more then than I know him today. And so I don't ever want to exhaust the resources of Jesus' heart and the resources of heaven and all that he has for me. I love the Misty Edwards song, How Far Will You Let Me Go? And How Abandoned Will You Let Me Be? I don't ever want to put a limit on what I'm going to let Jesus do in my heart. Ever. I don't care what it costs me because it's nothing is more valuable than just having that relationship with Jesus. Amen. Amen. So if you're here tonight, ask hungry for more, hungry for reality. I want to say bless you. And I want to pray that the Lord gives you more hunger. Because scripture says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because they'll be satisfied. And that is the only thing that will ever satisfy you. I love Adriana, but she can't come close to what Jesus does in my heart. And I can't do that for her either. So I just want to pray for us. I want to, you know, Paul, if you want to lead us in, you know, altered ministry or music, whatever you think. I just want to, that's, that's how I want to just leave you guys tonight. And um, just don't quit. Don't ever, ever quit going after Jesus. And it's going to be worth it. Because 70-year internship is worth a billion years of eternal glory with Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, Father, we just, we love you. We thank you tonight for the work of the cross, the songs we sang, that nothing can cleanse us from our sins. What can wash me white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So tonight, God, we ask you that you would confirm your word with power. We ask you that you would strengthen our inner man tonight, God. That you would give us just once more an encounter with who you are, with the beauty of your majesty, with the beauty of holiness, that we would know what it looks like to walk out that Genesis 3 reality where you breathe life into the dead clay and you made a perfect bride. So right now, God, we just ask you that you would breathe life into our mortal bodies. Even now, God, you just breathe your Holy Spirit. We just say, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, we just open up our hands. I just encourage you, if you want more, just open up your hands and just ask Him for more. In your own language, just even in your own words, just dialogue with the Holy Spirit right now. Just ask Him for more. God, we ask you for more. In the time of spring rain, Jesus, we ask you for rain. Just even as this, this winter has been brutally cold, Jesus, we ask you to warm our hearts, warm our cold hearts with that fresh just wave of your spirit, Jesus, which is that fresh presence. We ask you even now, God, that you would just unveil to us, mark hearts, mark destinies. Just I just ask you for dreams, even this evening, God, 
that you would awaken people to their calling, to their ministry. Some of you, the Lord is going to call you to be a father, a mother, and that's what he wants you to do. And you don't have to be afraid of that. For some of you, ministry isn't going to be your primary calling. Your ministry may be to have six kids and work full-time as a janitor and just raise godly offspring and have 15 grandkids and just have a beautiful family, and that's cool. And Jesus is, Jesus is all over that. So, God, we just ask you for peace tonight just as you do this, as you do your work, as you make us look more like you, as you make us pure and spotless bride, as you knock on the door of our hearts tonight, as you get up off of your throne room and you come and you do what you love to do and you create a partner that will dwell and minister with you in heaven for all of the days of your life. God, we ask you for a divine definition of greatness, that this one is the greatest in heaven. He who comes to me like a child. God, we ask you for greatness defined by Jesus, that we would come to you like children, and we would just say yes to you, and we would just invite the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, just the fruit of the Spirit, And so, yeah, I guess last testimony, I struggle with anxiety. So I just want to just admit that to you guys. But what really helped me when I was learning about the work of the Holy Spirit was this guy gave a message just about letting the ministry of the Holy Spirit do its work. And it was honestly this simple. When I started struggling with being anxious about my future or being anxious about whatever it was, a relationship or whatever, He just said, simply do this. Look into Galatians 5 and just say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for your peace. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your love. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your kindness. And I promise you that did so much to bring just calmness and peace to my heart. So, God, we love you. We bless you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Paul. So now we have the invitation to wherever you're at, you know, with life, whatever um, you've been feeling, thinking, dreaming about, um, you know, with the Lord, just turn. We're going to pray for each other, um, speak to one another, uh, go talk with someone you're, you're comfortable with, with sharing with and, and praying with, um, and just turn and, and start engaging the Lord. Invite the Spirit um, with, with where you're at in life. So go ahead and do that. <laughs>